Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi. Can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for. And sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Rebecca Boggs Roberts is an award-winning educator, author, and speaker, and is a leading historian of American women's suffrage and civic participation. She is currently Deputy Director of Events at the Library of Congress and has previously served as a journalist, producer, tour guide, forensic anthropologist, event planner, political consultant, jazz singer, and radio talk show host. Rebecca serves on the board of the National Archives Foundation, on the Council of Advisors of the Women's Suffrage National Monument Foundation, and on the Editorial Advisory Committee of the White House Historical Association. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband, three sons, and a long-eared hound dog. Here is my conversation with Rebecca. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to speak with you. I am not a history buff in the slightest, so this is perfect for me because I always want to learn about things, but for some reason I don't I don't pick things up so we can get into my issues later. But for now, I would like to say welcome and I'm so glad you're here. Me too. I'm delighted you stepped out of your fiction lane to talk to me a little bit. That's right. I do a lot of nonfiction, but I just, for some reason, maybe I've been a a little lull because I remember this is now I've totally gone off track. Okay. Let's get back on track here, Julie. Keep it together. This is, so the thing I wanted to mention at the outset of this is that your mom was Cokie Roberts. And I love, she was such a a wonderful presence and someone I grew up watching. And uh, I read We Are Our Mother's Daughters when I was young and it was given to me by my mom. So I really was happy to be able to speak to you today and just uh, see another part of her legacy, which is, of course, you. Oh, thank you. No, she was, I mean, all of the wonderful things people said about her when she died a couple of years ago were totally true. I was her biggest fan and miss her every day. So thank you for mentioning her. I bet you do. I'm sorry she's gone, but I'm I'm glad that you and I can speak about her today because I do think she lives on in so many ways. And I was looking through all of her books. It's It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, okay. So let's talk about you before we move on to Edith Wilson, because your book that's coming out is Untold Power and the fascinating rise and complex legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. So we'll get into that, but I'd love to talk first about your bio because you have had every job under the sun. I, I was dying when I read it. Journalist, tour guide, producer, forensic anthropologist, political consultant, jazz singer, radio talk show host, 
You also were working for Planet Word, which looks like the coolest museum that I now want to go to. And now you work for the Library of Congress. Yeah. I mean, other than the forensic anthropology chapter, it really is sort of just storytelling in a lot of different forms. Yes. Which is why when I got the opportunity to help start Planet Word, which I absolutely encourage everyone to visit, it's a museum of words and language here in Washington. It was sort of this crazy eclectic resume leading to this one thing of starting a museum of words and language because right. playing with words and finding their beauty and wonder is is really what all of those jobs have been about. Yes. And now I'm at the Library of Congress where I get to do all the same things on an even bigger scale and, uh, you know, write American history on nights and weekends. I mean, really. You really <laughs> sounds like could do more with your time. <laughs> And I know you have a family too, children and a dog, it sounds like. Yes. Although I must say I have young adults now. I have two in college and one who's a senior in high school. So they require very little parenting. The dog is needy, but the the kids are really launched. (laughs) They're doing all right. A senior in high school for your youngest. Now I'm, my oldest is midway through high school. So that, are you excited about that? Is your youngest excited to depart? How does everyone yeah, feel? He's, I mean, he's a super independent kid. So in some ways he kind of has departed. He, he shows up when he's hungry, but he also, his older brothers are twins and they okay. take up a lot of oxygen. And so I think that he is eager to start his own chapter. He, you know, is hearing from colleges now and starting to imagine where he's going to be next year. And I actually really enjoy parenting teenagers. I think they're hilarious on purpose and great company. Yes. So I will miss them. I already miss the two oldest ones, but you also really don't want to raise kids who don't want to leave home. Like this is what they're supposed to do. So new chapters that are bittersweet, but uh, all, all good. Oh, it's so true. They are hilarious. I, my kids will come home from school and tell me what someone at their class said, and I will be rolling. I mean, they are so funny and I don't, I don't think I was funny at that age. So I think they're funny. Clever. Like there's the one liner thing, but also so my my youngest son, it was in a fantasy football league, and the loser, the penalty for losing was they had to enter the school's open mic night and perform a comedy routine that their friends wrote for them. Which is like such evil genius, right? And it was this incredibly cringy, unfunny routine. (laughs) Oh what really pointed cruelty to the people that you like best. I love it. Total hilarity, right? They didn't do anything that was going to get them in trouble or get them kicked out of school, but they just made it so painfully unfunny. (laughs) (laughs) That is the kind of stuff I can get behind. I love that. Oh man. Well, I'm glad that's, and the way you put that, I feel like many in a, in a family's ecosystem, there are people that take up a little more oxygen than others. And I think youngest kids also have such a gift. They're so smart about kind of watching things, whereas I'm a, an eager achieving oldest. So I'm Uh in a different way, right? (laughs) I look at my youngest and I'm like, this kid knows what's up. He, he's really a lot smarter. (laughs) I'll wait. Well, that is, I'm glad that you're on the precipice of a new season, but tell me what you do at the Library of Congress. I feel like the Library of Congress is the thing that we've all heard of, but we have no idea what happens there. 
So what yeah, is, y'all should yeah, come visit because it's amazing. So okay. the Library of Congress, which has been around since Congress has been around, okay. was originally meant to be sort of this depository of American knowledge. And the building itself is very ornate. Well, there are three mm. buildings, but the building everyone pictures, okay. especially if you've seen National Treasure Book of Secrets, of course. is <laughs> the incredibly ornate with all kinds of allegorical art and symbolism. And, you know, it really is sort of the American story of ingenuity and knowledge. But on top of that, I don't know if you followed recently when Lizzo played James Madison's crystal flute on stage because the Library of Congress has a flute collection and the librarian of Congress, who's this unbelievably cool woman named Carla Hayden, tweeted at Lizzo saying, hey, I hear you're coming to Washington and you play the flute. You want to play James Madison's flute on stage? And there was a lot of like, wait, Lizzo plays the flute? Wait, (laughs) James Madison had a flute? Wait, they make flutes out of crystal? Wait, the Library of Congress collects flutes? Like there was so much in that one little exchange oh that my people gosh. were sort of baffled by, but it all happened. So it is just in addition to being a library and a very beautiful, very stately library, yes. this kind of living, breathing repository of knowledge and artifacts and culture. Mm. And my job is to help plan all the events. So all the great big events like the National Book Festival and the Gershwin Awards, all the little events, all of the concerts and book talks, all of the congressional events, because we are Congress's library. Sure. Yes. And then all the people who just rent the library for their own private events. So we're busy. <laughs> I can but imagine. it's fascinating. Wow. What's your favorite type of event to plan? I mean, I really like the library events, the ones that are, you know, exhibit openings or we're right in the middle of the Gershwin Awards right now. The awardee this year is Joni Mitchell. Mm. And because she's such an icon, all of these other stars want to perform in her tribute concert. And while for our office, that's just a crazy amount of missing, you know, moving parts and who's getting seated where and who's security and blah, blah, blah. But it's really kind of the best of American culture in yes. on a stage that not a lot of people get to play on. So, and I have to say, uh, Joni Mitchell's music, uh, you know, I'm a little young for that. It is kind of boomer heaven, but some of the people playing in the tribute concert, Annie Lennox, like my 80s oh, start, right? Oh, Cindy Lauper. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So exciting. Yes. Oh, my, my high school self is really excited right? about that. Oh, that's awesome. I love Andy Lennox. I was listening to some remake the other day and the kids, or I think Sweet Dreams Are Made of This came on. And one of the kids goes- Still cool. I know. She said, or Nolan said, wow, this is really cool. And I was like, yeah, I know. I've been listening to this. That's really fun. I love how kids also these days are appreciating a lot more of our music. I mean, I know I appreciated my parents to some extent, but I feel like they get it a little bit better. Yeah. Thanks, internet. It holds up. (laughs) It does. Yes. Well, Lizzo playing a crystal flute. I'm going to have to Google that after this because Mm -hmm. I think I missed that. But you will fall down a deep, deep hole because, of course, there were lots of pearl clutchers saying that she was twerking in her, you know, and being a black woman uh, and that James Madison would be rolling over in his grave. But, you know, haters going to hate. Haters going to hate. That can be the new Library of Congress events smile <laughs> for now on. It's so true. Ooh, I do love a good rabbit hole, though, right? Where you look up and you're like, oh, so that's an hour yeah, and a half. Yeah, pour yourself a drink and put your feet up because <laughs> it's going to be a minute. Friday night, here I come. <laughs> so have you always been, I mean, it sounds like you're in the perfect job for you. And I love hearing about what you're saying about it being a repository of the best of what we have. And I think especially now, knowing that there are places that 
hold those objects, but also that spirit. It feels so comforting to me. Is that, have you always been a history buff? Have you always been someone that loved history growing up or is that something you developed later? Oh, I've absolutely always been a history buff. I think it, you kind of drink it in the water here in Washington. Okay. And this is my hometown. But also, I think because you mentioned my mom, I yeah. also had this extraordinary grandmother. Um, my mom's mom, Lindy Boggs, was a member of Congress. She you know, was born before women could vote nationwide, was this very proper Southern woman who called everyone darling and always was immaculately dressed with the good jewelry. But she also wielded power in very interesting and feminine ways. And so watching her kind of make history in real time, but in ways that were not recognized by the kind of Hall of Fame model of history, she wasn't a general or a president, always just sort of without an overt message, but by example, made me kind of realize that social change has always been accomplished by a whole lot of people. And the version of history that we learn is boring, first of all, but also really just kind of reductive, you know? And so as I got a little bit more sophisticated in thinking through how change is made, how agents of social change have their stories told, it became very clear to me that there are these fascinating, relevant, important stories. Mm -hmm. So I was always a consumer of history, especially American history, especially women in American history. I didn't start writing it myself until I guess now about five, six years ago. Wow. You've really put out a lot in five or six years. Way to go. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, I'm exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) We should end this now so you can take a nap for Pete's sake. (laughs) Well, to your point, I really appreciate what you're saying. And I agree that something that I loved when I picked up the book and started reading it, I think our tendency is to see both history and the people who lived it as very one-dimensional. So we get one soundbite, one side of either their personality or what they did, and that's what we write with. But I think it takes a lot more empathy and creativity and intention to think about someone as a full person and not just whatever their most recognizable action was. So I really enjoyed just even in the beginning of your book, thinking about the ways that, you know, we're writing about someone like Edith Wilson, who, I mean, I'm sorry to say had never crossed my mind before this book popped in my inbox. So why did you choose to write about her? And is it, is it in that spirit of, you know, shining a a broader light or a wider lens on someone's life? Yeah, no question. I mean, first of all, those one-dimensional representations, they're dull. Saints are boring, right? Even like purely evil villains are boring. Yes. But also, why learn history? To be an educated person, certainly. But ideally, you're learning history so that you can be inspired to make it yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I felt very strongly when I was studying the suffrage movement. And one of the reasons that my co-writer, Lucinda Robb and I wrote a young reader's book about suffrage that was sort of an activist handbook, like lessons you could take from the suffrage movement to be an activist yourself. But if if you see people in history as some like once in a generation genius, Mm -hmm. you don't feel like you can be them. Mm -hmm. You don't feel like you can change the world. And I hope 
everybody wants to change the world. Yes. There's a lot to change. And so you have to acknowledge the, these people were just as flawed as you. They were slow to learn. They made mistakes. They went backwards sometimes in order to feel like you can also play that role. So it's not just like better, more accurate, more interesting history. It's more relevant. Mm. And Edith is fascinating because to the degree anyone's paid attention to her at all, they've paid attention to the eight years she was married to Woodrow Wilson, right? which was a 10th of her life. Like imagine just taking 10% of your life and judging your whole life on that random 10%. It's not fair and it's not accurate. And so she got reduced to like one of three stock characters. She was either this sort of naive country mouse where, you know, politically savvy operators took advantage of her and installed her as kind of a puppet to do their will. Okay. One option is she was just a devoted wife. She was the best Mrs. Woodrow Wilson she could possibly be. And everything she did was in her, his service without thought to her own priorities or even the priorities of the rest of the nation. She was the biggest proponent of that version, by the way. Interesting. Yes. And then there are a few people who sort of saw her as this kind of like Lady Macbeth grabbing the reins of power for her own Machiavellian ends. Right. Like none of those are right. No stock character can be entirely right. Yes. But it, if you were, so if you know one thing about Edith Wilson, you know that when Woodrow Wilson had a stroke, she acted as president while he yes. was sick. But if you are surprised by her doing that, you just weren't paying attention. Like the rest mm. of her life, she showed over and over again what kind of a person she was. And so I found her just fascinating from beginning to end. But she wasn't a hero and she wasn't a villain and she wasn't a sinner and she wasn't a saint. None of us are purely yes. those things. And so creating a picture of her as a whole real live complex woman was a huge part of the fun. I bet you did a really masterful job of it. And I do like that in the scope of the book, you're seeing a lot more than just those eight years that you're talking about. I think also seeing the part where they're trying to catch him as catch him out when Fall is trying to sort of run this end around situation, I was amazed how, you know, everything changes and everything stays the same. Right. This feels like it could be happening today. It's just the same sort of game in this larger context. But I really, I think you accomplished what you set out to do, which is show her as a full person. Thank you. So, yeah, absolutely. Did you, I think, Something you really talked about also is that the first lady as sort of this symbol of American womanhood, but that the ideal woman changes over time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was something I hadn't really considered. I was even looking at the pictures in the book where her last portrait in office is the one where she said she looked too thin. And I was <laughs> laughing at that. I just thought, I mean, even things like that that we speak about, you know, body image and whatever. Did you, so when you, Went to write this. I mean, was that, did you always want to tell a woman's story in this? And what's the, I guess, what's the value or what do you see as the most important part of that? Yes, I always. I was sorry, that was a little bit of a stories, But I think um, to me, why, why women? Yeah. I think because their stories are underrepresented, all of that. Sure. For sure. But yeah. also, Certainly in the past, when women didn't have the opportunity to play the leadership roles that they can now, mm-hmm. they it's not like they weren't 
affecting social change. It's not like yes. 50% of the population wasn't doing anything to advance history. They just were doing it in very different ways. And there has been an effort at recognizing women's history that's a little bit like, she was there too, you know? Yes. Somebody else was part of that. Abigail Adams was whispering in John Adams' ear, that sort of thing. Right. And that that's useful as far as it goes. I think it actually requires a sort of wholesale remodel of how we tell history mm. to think through exactly how history is made. Like why, why, for instance, in the Civil War era, do we know about every battle, every charge up Cemetery Ridge, the names of the horses for crying out loud, right? <laughs> Seriously. But less about the abolition movement, yes. which was co-ed and radical mm -hmm. and Maybe not the reason that ultimately slavery was abolished, but a huge part of the changing social norms yes. that allowed people to think through a world without slavery. Mm -hmm. And that is just a very different way of making history than battles and legislation and who was in charge of battles and legislation. Right. Matt. And, yeah. you know, so I just, if you live through any sort of social change. Think through just in the last 10 years, how different attitudes about same-sex marriage have become, yes. um, how different attitudes about climate change have become. That is not through the Supreme Court decision to legalize same-sex marriage. That was the end point, not the beginning point. Yes. And the movement that started changing people's minds and making people think through that change was possible and starting to shift where we were on the continuum as a society, that is making history. Yes. It's not just the person who, you know, signed the law. And now obviously more women are signing the laws, but right. uh, they're not, they're not winning the battles yet. They're not, you know, parody in the military so much, but anyway, that, that is why it fascinates me because I think that it's all still important and it's mm -hmm. all still uh, getting results, but through very different channels that can be harder to document. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hmm. Do you think that change is happening faster than it did in the past? Like even when you're talking about same-sex marriage, I'm thinking, you know, are, do the windows shrink in terms of the speed of turnover or do you think it's the same? I think it depends on the issue. Okay. I mean... Where are you dating the gay rights movement start from, right? You know, if right. you date it from Stonewall to same-sex marriage in the Supreme Court, that's actually 
fairly fast, right? Right. But if you date it from people being jailed for sodomy and changing the, you know, then suddenly you're talking about hundreds of years and that's not actually that quick an issue. Mm -hmm. And so maybe same-sex marriage sort of appeared on the public radar and became legal in what felt like a quick time frame, but the whole sort of slow drip, drip, drip of gay rights and equality in general have been going on a lot longer. And in fact, choosing marriage and calling it marriage equality was a tactic of the gay rights movement that was very intentional Mm. as something where minds could be changed. And, you know, I'm a student of the suffrage movement. If you date suffrage from the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848 and say it ended when the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920. That's 72 years. That's a really, really long time. There were lots of failures along the way. Yeah. But that wasn't even the beginning and end part, right? Suffrage was only one part of women's equality. And so in some ways, yes, it feels like things are moving faster. We've got these organizing tools. We've got, you know, the ability to reach people of like mind across the country, across the world in ways that, you know, activists before us could never have imagined. Yeah. But it, it also you got to take the long view or you're going to feel like a failure every time something doesn't go your way. You know, some of these things take a hundred years. Gosh, that's so incredible to think about. I am an elementary school librarian and we were reading a book about Martin Luther King Jr. And the book did a good job of explaining, you know, for 300 and however many days it was, 383, or talking about the Memphis bus boycott. Memphis, did I get that city right? Selma? Uh, 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 Montgomery, yes. Alabama. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. See, yeah. this is why I'm, I should really fact check before. <laughs> I mean, I'll put that on my, my to-do list. He was me. assassinated in Memphis where he was supporting a strike of the garbage workers. The garbage so. collectors. You're close. Yes. yes. <laughs> close. Wow. Thanks for that. It's <laughs> so generous of you. <laughs> it's okay, sweetie. Sometimes we all make mistakes. <laughs> But what we were talking about, I didn't make that mistake with them, but what I told them is, you know, we know the name of Martin Luther King Jr., but think about every person that didn't ride the bus for over a year, that that was a personal sacrifice they made and so many names in history that we don't know. And exactly what you're saying where, you know, taking this long view is both important for us currently, but also then the way that we look at it in the past and thinking about how so many tiny incremental moments then can shift things in big ways, but that even the buildup to those tiny moments isn't, nothing happens in a vacuum, which is right. exciting. And, and you as a librarian are in the middle of this now, right? Like there's more conversations about censorship and control yes. and uh, parental consent over what kids read. And that's not happening in a vacuum. Librarians aren't suddenly confronting censorship and reading levels and, you know, yes. parental input for the very first time. It might have spiked right now, but you've got this whole long movement of librarians mm-hmm. being pretty badass radicals, you know, for a very long time trying to navigate these social norms. That's such an excellent point. You're right. Just because something comes into the public consciousness doesn't mean that it hasn't always been happening. Right. Mm. Excellent. Okay, I want to talk briefly about the evolution of roles over time. So when you talk about Edith as first lady, and then what we think about as a first lady now, do you think that there's, what's the best change that we've seen in that role specifically? I mean, other than obviously the advancement of women's voices, but what do you think about 
specific to the first lady has really gotten better. So it's still a bananas role, right? I mean, it's still hundred percent. We're talking yes. <laughs> that we expect the spouse to p- take this job that has no job description, that is unpaid. That sure you can like look back on your predecessors and say, "I admire how she did it." She, you know, but you still have to invent it yourself because yeah. of that reflecting ideal American womanhood thing, which is a moving target. Yes. So. I mean, I think that there are some things that have improved in terms of expectation, and you okay. have to give Eleanor Roosevelt a huge amount of credit here. Okay. When she started taking on causes and sometimes publicly disagreeing with her husband or writing columns about something she was fighting for that was actually contrary to the administration's point of view, yeah. that was pretty shocking at the time, and she was vilified for it, but it set the stage for first ladies to have their own agenda. Now, they're still not going to take on anything super radical. They're promoting things like literacy and child nutrition. You know, you're not going to see, I think, a first lady taking on, you know, abortion rights or police reform or something. Right. But just the fact that it is now expected that the first lady will have a cause. Mm -hmm. I think that's an improvement. They're smart. They're politically savvy. They've got power. They've got visibility. Let them use it for good. I think that you're seeing little incremental changes. The fact that Jill Biden is has kept a paying job outside of the White House. She's the first first lady to do that. Yeah. That's an interesting change, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that this sort of notion of the first lady as a presidential surrogate, not just a like plus one. First ladies do a lot of public diplomacy. They are, you know, showing up at a lot of international meetings and funerals and ceremonies where she's got sort of the right level of importance to make the person who invited her feel special, Mm -hmm. but she's also sort of non-controversial. And I think that that is a role that is a very good use of this prominent yet jobless human. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And Edith Wilson pioneered a lot of that, actually. You know, no no first lady had ever really gone abroad before she insisted on accompanying Wilson to the Paris peace talks. And so I do think that each woman has to figure it out and make it her own. And and I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens when we have a first gentleman and how the expectations change when the gender roles change. Mm -hmm. But it it is an impossible bananas job. It really is. I mean, talk about ones you really can't win, right? right. <laughs> I love how we set women up for success in this country. It's, <laughs> it's just so inspiring. <laughs> what do you think is Edith Wilson? So you mentioned she accompanied Woodrow abroad. She really, you know, masterminded. It sounds like a lot of this. I mean, you could call it a cover up. Oh, and yeah. I feel like call you it do. A cover so, up. Okay. Because yep. she really is at the center of that and just reading about all the details and the things that she handled and managed other than those two. I mean, is there, what do you think is her most lasting legacy in terms of change as it relates to the presidency and the first lady and those sort of interactions or is there one? She was in a strange position because she married the president when he was already in office, his first wife died during his first term. She was the one who had kind of come up through the ranks with him. She was the one who had had all those initial conversations about, you know, is politics for me, right? Right. And so when Edith married Woodrow, he was the president of the United States. She became first lady overnight. And so 
she didn't have an on-ramp of any kind. And I think that puts her in a very different role than someone who started out with that mayoral race 20 years ago, you know? Right. Totally. And she was really hesitant to marry him. (laughs) He moved very fast. If you read their love letters, which are quite something. Really? Oh, yeah. So Woodrow Wilson, who you think of as this like pencil neck professorial academic type. Yes. His letters are racy. (laughs) And, And he is ardent from the very beginning. And so he is writing her two, three letters a day. He's telling her how beautiful is she is, how he wants to kiss her eyelids on and on. And she's writing back from the very beginning saying, oh, isn't that nice? Lovely. Thank you. Let's talk about William Jennings Bryan. Do you think he's going to quit? Who do you think is going to take secretary of defense if he quits? I think he should quit. You know, so from the very beginning, she's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Romance. Let's talk politics. And she really dragged her feet on marrying him because she didn't want people to think she was marrying the office, that she was a social climber, not a gold digger because he had no money and she had plenty, but that she was taken by the title. And so she finally said to him, I'll marry you if you lose (laughs) (laughs) re-election. You're you're wonderful. I love you. I'll marry you if you lose in 1916. And all he heard was, I'll marry you. So he started telling everyone they were engaged. And finally, she sort of couldn't hold firm. Finally, she said, actually, I do want to marry you. And, and they married in 1915 before he was reelected in 1916. But she she didn't really want the role. Yeah. And she had to kind of get her mind around the idea of, first of all, giving up a lot of independence and yeah. uh, sort of social status that was rare for women in uh, the 19 teens because Mm -hmm. she had no kids and she had independent wealth and she wasn't beholden to anybody. But I think she had to kind of think through what role will I play in the white house? What persona will I put on? Because she had to do it overnight. And yes, the one she, the one she chose was the most devoted wife ever. Mm -hmm. Right. Mrs. Woodrow Wilson. She preferred to be called Mrs. Woodrow Wilson than the first lady. And that hides so much more than it reveals. You know, you can use that as a cover for a pretty big agenda. So I don't think she actually wanted to wield power herself. I don't think anything she did while he was sick was any different than what he would have done had he been well. But she sure didn't care what anyone else thought. And she Mm. had absolutely no problem lying to Congress to the cabinet, to the press, to the public, to Woodrow himself. She never told him how sick he was. And so it's fascinating to me that she, when she decided she was going to take on this role, that she had a little, you know, I don't really care what anyone else thinks attitude. Yeah, that is very powerful. And you're exactly right. There's a a different freedom that was granted to her in her mind, because you're right. She wasn't there for kind of the coming up of it. So you would have a completely different pattern. I also loved the picture of the brownstone where the Secret Service had to sit outside while he was visiting her. <laughs> That's the sort of detail I'm interested in, right? Is that right. Secret Service totally. agent is like, oh, is he done? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd really like to leave. <laughs> well, I think you But I also done... love that they were all sort of cheering for him, right? Yes. The Secret Service. Yes. Yes. It sounds like he was very well well regarded during or by his by his closest people 
Would you say that that's fair? Yeah, I have to say I had to revise my opinion of Woodrow Wilson a little bit doing this book because after writing about suffrage, you don't have a lot of nice things to say about Woodrow Wilson and the suffrage movement. He came up with reason after reason after reason to be against women's enfranchisement, most of which boiled down to kind of garden variety sexism. And so it was hard for me to like him. And he did some he went backwards in some ways, you know, he resegregated the civil service here in Washington. Mm -hmm. He demoted black members of the government who had been able to achieve some status in the Roosevelt and Taft administrations, you know, and so it's hard to, and he's, he was such a prig, you know, he's such a moralist and, and so self-righteous. So I didn't have much nice to say about him. I will say that having read his letters and sort of seen how he handled himself when he was sick, you have to at least think his heart was in the right place. Like Mm. he was sincere. It's not like he was putting on this moral aspect for the public and in private was actually cynical and conniving. Yeah. He truly was sincere. Hmm. He did not have a sense of humor as far as I can tell. Whereas Edith was hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. But So it doesn't make me want to like hang out with him more, but it does make me think like the people who, who were loyal to him truly believed him to be a good, decent man trying Mm. to do the right thing. That's so interesting that you use the word sincerity because it does, it counts for a lot in terms of, yeah, it's sort of an at least game, right? Well, at least you're not, (laughs) even though you're wrong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) At least you believe in what you're saying. You're not trying it on for political gain. Yeah, Yeah. there is. I mean, that seems like a horrible distinction to make, but there it is. I mean, that makes sense to me where it's like, well, at least you actually think this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And also I've written you a list of reasons why you're wrong. That sounds like a (laughs) conversation I have with my husband. That's that's great that you see it this way, but you're going to need to see it differently. And here's why. (laughs) I numbered them. So one final question for you, and that's to bring us all the way back around. You can have a dinner party. You can have three to five people from any time in history. Who would you want at your table? Oh, my goodness. Which is kind of a mean question. I'm sorry. (gasps) No, I love questions like this. So one of the ways that I kind of got around the fact that Edith's own memoir is um, unreliable because she was so interested in curating her own image Mm -hmm. was reading everybody else's memoirs too. Right. Okay. And so the ones that are frank and funny and snarky and self-deprecating, those are the people I want to have dinner with. So Alice Roosevelt Longworth, no question, right? She would have all the hot goss. She would look fantastic. She'd tell you which caterer to hire. She'd probably bring some inappropriate date. Great. And, you know, who was not her husband. Of course. And bring on Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Check. She's invited. I'm putting it in the mail. (laughs) The hot goss. Also, like, you can't have too much snark at one table. So while I would love Dorothy Parker to be there, I'm not sure Alice Roosevelt Longworth and Dorothy Parker could, like, not would both survive to the tilt coffee at the end of the meal. I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> you don't want anyone to storm out. Storm out. Yeah, you've paid right? for this. So yes. Okay. Got it. So she can be on the standby list. Yes, exactly. If Alice <laughs> is busy, which is likely, frankly, 
you true. know, it's true in my fantasy world. <laughs> yeah. Um, although Dorothy Parker also likely to be busy, also likely to be rude, funny, but rude. And so ultimately you want your dinner party to be a success. It's true. It's true. So <laughs> I love this consideration. This is the kind of level I'm looking for. Like, well, wait, okay. They couldn't sit next to each other. Okay. So we'll, we'll say Alice for sure. And I mean, I love that even in our fantasy world, she might be busy, but yeah. we'll just say she's not. She's coming. So we need Dolly Madison there because okay. Dolly Madison is going to be the person who finds common ground, gets everybody talking, you know, remembers that your mama was sick and okay. tells you how cute your shoes are and just is going to be there to make everything lovely and delightful and tell you that you're doing a heck of a job and this is the nicest party she's ever been to. Great. She will also have the hot goss. So Okay. Win-win. Perfect. Right? That sounds like, I mean, the ideal, talking about ideal woman, I mean, that says to me, right? I'm going to provide a little social lubricant here and also a little Tinder if we need it. Right. Exactly. Perfect. And also okay. tell you you're doing a hell of a job. Yes. That's right? that's the key point. Yes. <laughs> I want to be told I, it was the right shoe choice and that I'm doing a great job. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> Wait, how many do I get after Alice? I said three to five. So you can, oh. it's up to you. Oh, this is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> we can stop at three if it feels because there are so many women I admire, but who would be a disaster at this party? Like, can you imagine Elizabeth Katie Stanton if I introduced her into this mix? Ooh. Like, super smart. She'd probably like form a movement among these people by the end of dinner. Yes. And I would love to hear what Elizabeth Katie Stanton and Dolly Madison had to talk about. But she also, she was a heavy lift. Okay. So, but charming. And okay. Funny. Yeah, I'd, I'd, let's throw in Elizabeth Cady Stanton as okay. opposed to like Susan B. Anthony, who would have had no fun at all, and right. Alice Paul, who would call us all frivolous for spending money on food. Mm, okay, maybe light the table on fire, kind of thing, <laughs> to keep us warm. Yeah. Also okay. possible. She can come to a different event, <laughs> not this one. <laughs> yeah. Then I think we need someone to like bring snacks, like the, you know, okay. the person yes. who comes in and says, I was just in Paris at this fantastic boulangerie and I've brought chocolate for everyone. Okay. Right. Who is that person? I, that might be Edith. Okay. Yes. Little travel, little, uh, okay, great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm liking this party. I feel like this is- You want to come? Well. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I should have said that. I'm inviting myself. <laughs> I feel like it's going to be really fun and we're going to get all the hot goss and also we'll make it to the end without anyone telling them they hate us. Right. Exactly. Great. (laughs) They might gossip later in the gossip columns in the papers, but that's okay. I mean, I feel like we just, that's a risk we have to take, unfortunately, but I mean, page six, here we come, right? Or page six of whatever age we're in. Because that also is a question we'll have to revisit is what age we A little are we bit of a mix. Yes, yes. We'll have to, I'm going to put a pin in that. And then when you write your next book, then I will have you back on and we'll continue. I'll write all this Great. down. I'll map it it's out. It's a deal. I'll, I'll have a seating chart by then. Okay. And do you want to tell us real quick what you're working on right now? Anything? Oh, gosh. I mean, yeah, uh, my job and my family and, you know, all that. I have to say, I will always have some other woman I'm kind of a little bit in love with and fascinated by and working on. I have like three possibilities for the next one. What I haven't gotten to the stage of is like making sure there's enough reliable primary sources and good historical context to really tell their story. So stay tuned. Okay. That sounds great. What? You mean you pay attention to facts and whether (laughs) the sources are good? Wow. That's weird. (laughs) 
I won't be doing that on my Lizzo deep dive on the internet about the crystal flute. <laughs> but I can see. The I value mean, for you're you. a librarian. I suspect <laughs> it. You it care might, about sources. It could be that I do. It could be. Well, I have to tell you, this has been a delight. Thank you for chatting with me and uh, for sharing all of your knowledge. I feel like I could pick your brain for days. I mean, it's just so tremendous to see what you've learned and what you share and how you share it. It's a gift. So thank you for that and for all you're doing and for this new book. I hope that it does so well and that all sorts of people get to see Edith as a full human, like you said, neither sinner nor saint, neither villain nor hero. She's somewhere in the middle. So I think that's wonderful. Julie, thank you so much. It's been a treat. Yeah, this was great. And have a great rest of your day. We will speak soon. Set the menu for our dinner party. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at juliewritesWords, or you can go to my website, juliewritesWords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.